Good job. Thank you to our musicians for leading us so well this morning. Well, I hope you'll consider uh, signing up for the marriage uh, conference that weekend, May 17th, 18th, and 19th. Um, marriage is uh, the most important relationship other than your relationship with Christ that you enter into in this life. And uh, it's, uh, it's significant, and it can be a wonderful thing, or it can be an incredibly difficult thing. And at sometimes it's probably both at times. Um, and so we wanted to, to get together that weekend. Uh, I've really appreciated Paul Tripp's ministry over the years and benefited from it greatly. And uh, I think you will as well if you've never listened to him, never interacted with him. Um, and so should be a really great, uh, great time of learning. Um, you know, you could probably just even pick up uh, from those, those few clips that you saw uh, just how rich and how full uh, his teaching on marriage is going to be. So I'd encourage you to sign up for that. Um, just be a good time being together watching that, and we'll all benefit greatly, greatly from that. Um, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 12 this morning. That's where we're going to be, out of the Gospel of Mark and into John this morning. A few years ago, uh, Bethany and I watched a movie um, that told the story of an assassination attempt on the President of the United States. It was a, a fictional movie. But the interesting thing about this movie, I'm sure tons of other movies do that sort of thing, but the interesting thing about this particular movie is you know, you went through the first uh, section, the first period of time where they, they show this assassination attempt, and then it circles back around and goes through that same set of uh, the same time frame over again, but it does it from a different character's perspective. And then it goes back and it goes through the same time frame again, and it goes through a different character's perspective. And so the whole thing, the whole movie is really only a few minutes of time, but it constantly circles back around and goes through a different vantage point. I think that's the name of the movie, is Vantage Point. And it goes through a different vantage point on the scene that unfolds and tells it from a different character's perspective. And when you're, first, when you're watching the first uh, time that you go through this time frame, then you, know, you learn some things about what's happening, but you have a ton of questions what's going on, okay, who is this, all of that. And then each successive character that you watch go through this particular time frame, you gather a little bit more information, and as you see each different vantage point, your picture of the situation begins to fill out more and more, and you begin to understand more fully what's going on. Well, I think that is a pretty good description of what's happening with the four Gospels. And we have four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of them tell the story of Jesus from a different perspective, from a different vantage point. Each Gospel gives a unique vantage point on Jesus and on his work. And when you study the Gospels, it's interesting because you have to simultaneously do a couple of things. You have to let each Gospel writer's vantage point stand on its own. You have to see what Mark is saying and what John is saying and the way in which they say it. But you also, at some point, have to say, okay, how do all of these Gospels fit together and the perspective that they give? What does that teach us about Jesus Christ? The vantage point of each Gospel writer will never, their different unique vantage points will never contradict each other. And when you put them all together, they fill out this beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is and what his work has accomplished. 
So today, in the Gospel of John, that's where we're going to be. We're going to study the triumphal entry of Jesus. We're going to do that together. It's in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 9. And each of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, tell this story of the triumphal entry. Obviously, it's Palm Sunday, and so this would have been the day when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and then on Friday of this week, we have the Good Friday service, that's when he died on the cross, and then obviously we'll celebrate the resurrection next week. So we're going to look at this triumphal entry this week in John. But what's interesting for us, for those of you who have been around for a few months here, is we've gotten all the way to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and next Sunday we're going to end our study of the Gospel of Mark with the resurrection in Mark 16, but we studied the triumphal entry just a few months ago. I mean, it it was very, it should be, hopefully it's very fresh and familiar to you. As I start to read through this, you're going to go, oh yeah, I remember studying that. And so we looked at this exact same scene, the sequence of events in Mark, And today, we're going to look at the same sequence of events from a different vantage point. And so this will be, I think, really helpful to you to see the triumphal entry from these unique vantage points. And what Mark doesn't emphasize, John does. And that tells us something about the person and work of Jesus. So we want to compare and contrast the way each gospel writer tells the story. So John 12 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, they're in the the pews uh, right in front of you. Feel free to take one of those little black ESV Bibles. That's what they're there for if you need one. But this is in preparation for Easter. And the triumphal entry, when you you think about it, if you've heard this story before, you know that the triumphal entry puts the kingship of Jesus on full display. I mean, he rides in the city as a king, and everyone recognizes him as a king. And Mark did that. The Gospel of Mark did that as well. But John does it in a unique way. John really emphasizes the responses of people to the triumphal entry. And he tells us how people responded to this presentation of Jesus as the king. And that's what I want our focus and our attention to be on this morning, the ways in which these people responded, and then the ways in which we should respond to Jesus as king. So this morning, we're going to see three responses to the kingship of Jesus, and these responses clarify our responsibility as his followers. So three responses to the kingship of Jesus that clarify our responsibility as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And the first one of these you can see on the screen there, is to recognize his kingship. This is in verses 12 through 15. You can't know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus unless you recognize him as king. And not just that you recognize him as king, but you understand what type of king is he. Jesus is a particular type of king. He comes with a particular mentality and a particular attitude, and then he tells us as his followers to mimic, to imitate that same perspective and that same attitude. And so we want to uncover what sort of king is he. We want to recognize his kingship and what type of kingship he has. So if you begin this story in verse 12, we're kind of jumping in the middle here, and it becomes apparent really quickly that we are jumping in the middle of something that's already been happening. Look at verse 12 with me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so you're jumping into the middle of a story here. And John, more than any other gospel writer, presents the triumphal entry as 
coming in the middle of a story. This is in the middle of a sequence of events that have been going on and that have been happening. And the responses that we're going to see are responses really to that larger story. So so what what sequence of events is this coming in the middle of? What, What is the larger story that the triumphal entry comes in? Well, if you look at verse 12, it says, the next day, the large crowd. Well, you have to ask the question, what, lar- what large crowd is that? What is, he, what is he talking about there? Well, to answer that question, we're going to go back a couple of verses. Look at verse 9. When the large crowd, there's our group of the Jews, learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we find out that people, this large crowd of people, are coming to see Jesus, but they're not only coming to see Jesus. There's a a person of great interest and curiosity to them that they want to see as well. And that person's name is Lazarus. Well, Who was Lazarus? If you're jumping into the middle of the story here, who is this guy? Well, it tells us in verse 9 that Jesus had raised him from the dead. We won't go back and look at the whole story, but if you want this afternoon to get some some context and, and read the larger story, go back to John chapter 11 and begin there and read the story of Lazarus. I think it'll be helpful to you to see how this triumphal entry fits within that larger story. But to kind of summarize the story for you, Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus, he and his sisters. Lazarus got sick. Lazarus died. Lazarus was buried. And he was in the tomb for four days. So they didn't mess this one up. They didn't make a mistake. He wasn't just passed out. Dude was in the tomb for four days with it shut. And Jesus comes, and I'm summarizing here, stands outside the tomb, calls to Lazarus, and he literally comes back from the dead and walks out of the tomb, still wrapped in his grave clothes. It's an amazing story. Now, when that sort of thing happens, it's kind of hard to remain neutral when a guy has come back from the dead and, and you've, you've witnessed that happen. You were there, and you, you know he's been in the tomb for four days, and all of a sudden, this guy stands outside his tomb, calls to him, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out still wrapped in his grave clothes. It's hard to remain neutral when that happens. So what was the response of people? We'll look back at chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Yeah, I guess they did (laughs) after that happened. He raised a guy from the dead. So they believed in him. They trusted in him. And then look at verse 46. There were some other responses as well. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, all of this happened close to Passover, which is when the events of Jesus's death and resurrection took place. Look at verse 55 of chapter 11. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. 
So all of that is background to this triumphal entry. And when we get to verse 12, really we're dropping into the middle of an emotionally charged situation. Everybody is on edge. Everybody is excited from the religious leaders to the crowds that have gathered. People are interested in Lazarus. They want to see this guy that has come back from the dead. Probably want to ask him questions, wouldn't you? What was it like? What happened? People are trying to get a glimpse of him. And as they're trying to get a glimpse of him and hear about him, they find out that the very guy who has raised him from the dead is coming toward Jerusalem. And he's making his way down the road toward Jerusalem. Look back at verse, look back at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they go out to meet him. They're already excited about what has taken place, and they give him a welcome to the city as a victorious hero. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, it's very normal to associate palm branches with Palm Sunday. That's why we do that, and we get that from uh, this passage here. Uh, we, we associate that with the triumphal entry, but it's important that you understand the palm branch was a national symbol for Israel. So this would be like a group of people gathering up, lining the streets, maybe on a 4th of July parade, and they're waving American flags, and they're wearing little Statue of Liberty hats, and they're, they're, they're holding up pictures of eagles, right? Like, they're national symbols for America. Well, that's what they're doing here. They are filled with national pride for their nation. And look what they shout here. Hosanna. That means give salvation now. They're calling out for God to bring salvation to them right now. And this phrase here, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase is taken from an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, the psalm presents the king of Israel making his way into Jerusalem. And the particular part, he's a victorious hero. He's won a great military battle. And the particular part that they quote here is the part of the song where the congregation welcomes the king into Jerusalem after winning this battle. And so the people quote that here, and they cry out those words as Jesus is making his way toward the city of Jerusalem. They're welcoming him as a victorious leader, and notice what they add on the end of their phrase. Even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118, but they add it there. Why? Well, they're, they're clearly thinking of Jesus as a national political leader and hero, and they're hoping that he's going to enter the city of Jerusalem and he's going to drive the Romans out and he's going to win back their independence for them and their land for them. And honestly, this guy just raised somebody from the dead. So maybe you would think he has the power to do that sort of thing, and maybe you would have that sort of expectation. So they rightly identify him as king but what's interesting here is they're expecting a national political hero. They're expecting the type of king that they've come to know in the world at large. But that's not the type of king that Jesus is. 
Verses 14 and 15 explain to us what type of king he is. And if you read verses 14 and 15 right after 13, as you're supposed to do, it's really a a juxtaposition. It's a contrast, the picture that you get of Jesus here. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey. I mean, that's really a, a, a succinct summary of what happens here. We know the whole story from Mark and Matthew, but Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John focuses in just on the fact that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Why do that? Why focus on that fact? Well, he didn't ride a war horse in. Jesus wasn't denying that he was a king, but he was telling everyone what sort of king he was going to be. He was a humble king. He was a servant-oriented king. You can probably see in your Bible here, just as it is written, is a quote. What comes after that? It's a quote from Zechariah 9. Look at the full verse that that comes from here on the screen, Zechariah 9.9. It's a prediction of a Messiah coming. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. What sort of king is he? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He doesn't enter the city with military might to crush the Romans. He doesn't come through worldly power. He comes as a humble king. Now, the fact that Jesus comes as this sort of a king has massive implications for his followers. This posture of humble service and self-sacrifice that he takes on in this incident and then throughout the Passion Week is something that you and I, as his followers, need to mimic and need to imitate. In fact, in the very next chapter, John 13, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples what this should look like. Look at John 13 and verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now skip down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, literally happy, flourishing, are you if you do them. So according to Jesus here, finding the true purpose And meaning of your life comes from giving your life away in service to others. That idea 
of well-being and of living the good life stands in direct opposition to the current cultural climate that we are in. That's the opposite of what you and I hear all the time. One, uh, one philosopher called our particular time period the age of authenticity. What did he mean by that? Well, people today view the purpose and meaning of life as finding my true self, sort of looking inside and finding out who tr- I truly am and then living out that personal identity. The, the goal, the meaning of life is to be authentically who I am. It's very self-focused and self-oriented. And you and I are bombarded with that all the time. We get that all over the place. And don't think that just because you're here at church that you've sort of managed to avoid that mentality. So much of the time we think of church as a place I go to have my needs met. And my preferences should be this way when I go to church. I prefer this style of music or this program or whatever it may be. I'm here to have my itch scratched. And heaven help you if it's not. And Jesus challenges that way of living, that way of thinking about the purpose and meaning of life. He shows his disciples that true life consists in giving of yourself for the service and the good of others. So our goal as followers of Christ is God's glory and the good of others. And he says when we do that, when we pursue those goals, then true satisfaction and true joy and true happiness come as a result. And the entire life and ministry of Jesus models that for us, doesn't it? All the way to his sacrificial death. And you and I can hardly claim to know him as our king if we don't recognize his kingship, and then imitate his kingship in that way by serving others and living for the good of others. But recognizing his kingship is not the only response called for here. The second one is found in verse 16. Understand his exaltation, verse 16. So if you look at verse 16, it's pretty clear the disciples don't know really what's going on here. We've come kind of to expect this from the disciples, haven't we, in our study of Mark. But look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So they don't know exactly what's happening. They know something significant is going on here, but they don't understand the full implication of what's happening, but they will. When will they grasp what really is happening here? Look at verse 16. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So it's when Jesus was glorified. Well, when was he glorified? What's he talking about there? Well, this isn't the only time in John's gospel that the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing, but then they come to understand it later. John chapter 2. When, therefore, this is after Jesus had Turn the water into wine at the wedding there. Um, And after some other events that he had done, uh, cleansing of the temple, they're watching all of these things unfold. And this is what John says. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
So the glorification of Jesus is when he is raised from the dead and when he is exalted as the king. Now, it's right after the triumphal entry that Jesus explains to us how this exaltation will come about. Look down at chapter 12 and verse 23, down there. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is glorified by dying and by rising from the dead. And when that happens, when he rises from the dead, the disciples are finally able to see the full scope of his work, and they're able to put the pieces together, and they're to make sense of who he is and what he's done. And they begin to put two specific things together. Look at verse 16 again. They remembered two things, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what are the disciples thinking about? They're watching Jesus rises from the dead. They're pondering this. They're thinking about this. And they start to piece together the Old Testament, the things that had been written in the Old Testament, and they start to piece together what they saw in the life of Christ. And they're matching these two things up. And I can imagine that the light bulbs were just going on. Oh my goodness. Look at this and look at this. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie with... uh, a surprise ending. Um, these seemed to be all the rage when I was in high school and college. So a bunch of movies that came out like this, and it was a surprise ending, and you would watch it through, and then you'd be shocked at the end, and then you would go back through the movie, and you would watch it a second time, and as you watched it the second time, you could make sense of everything. You could see how it was leading to the surprise ending. You're like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I missed that. The first time through the movie, I think that's exactly what's happening to the disciples here. And that's certainly what this should be like for us now. We're able to look and we're able to see the Old Testament. We're able to see the way prepared for Jesus and for his work. And then we're able to look at his work and we're able to match the two up and go, oh my goodness, this is truly who he is. And this is what he has come to do. And that all makes sense because he has been exalted as king and his work has been finished. Now it's because of his exaltation as king that we have our third response here. This response is that we proclaim his worldwide glory. So we recognize his kingship. We know he's a humble king. We understand his exaltation. We see in his death and resurrection, he is glorified and exalted there. And now we can make sense of the full scope of his ministry, and then because of that exaltation, now it's our responsibility to proclaim his worldwide glory. So we saw earlier how closely connected the death of Lazarus is to the triumphal entry here. So keep in mind chapter 11, verse 45, if you want to just glance back there real quickly, it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So many people believed. They went out to find Lazarus to see a man who had been dead and now lived. And when they did that, and they saw him, what, what would your first response be when you experience something like this? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I, if I see something that is, is shocking or is amazing to me, I, I want to talk about it. 
I want to share it with other people. Um, I have this habit of finding YouTube videos that I think are hilarious and fantastic. I think they're objectively hilarious. And I see these things, and then I take them to Bethany, my wife, and I say, you've got to see this. And often I met with, oh, come on, Nate. I don't want to watch that video, which is probably fair. But think about your own life. It's a natural response. When you see something that is exciting or compelling or funny, you want to share that with people. That's part of the praise. The praise finds completion when you share it with someone else. Can you believe this? Look at this play that I watched on the basketball court in the national championship game. You've got to watch this, whatever it may be, right? If you were at the tomb of Lazarus and you saw a man stand there and tell him to come out of the tomb and he walked out of the tomb, you would not be quiet about that. Look at verse 17 of John 12. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Man, they were talking about what they had seen. This word here, bear witness, this is the same word that's used of John the Baptist in his ministry. He was bearing witness. He was speaking of what he knew, what he knew to be true. So what is the result of these people bearing witness? We'll look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So this is a different crowd. This is the crowd we saw earlier. The crowd in verse 12, the large crowd, had heard about the raising of Lazarus. And based on that testimony, they went out to see Jesus. And this whole triumphal entry scene occurs because this crowd goes out to see him. In other words, word is spreading fast. You cannot keep these people quiet because they've seen something that is shocking and amazing. But of course, if you remember, the people that believed in Jesus and that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they weren't the only ones that were responding here. They weren't the only ones that knew about his resurrection from the dead. We saw earlier the Pharisees knew about this too. And what did the Pharisees want to do? They actually wanted to put Lazarus to death. They wanted to find a way to eliminate him so that they wouldn't have to deal with words spreading about Jesus and what he'd done anymore. They were tired of it. And so when the triumphal entry happens and this whole scene erupts, people are talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They've gone and seen Lazarus. Now they're proclaiming it. People are coming out of the city excited about a man being raised from the dead, excited about this king who's coming into the city. When all of this unfolds and the Pharisees know about it, you get verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And I want to draw your attention to that last phrase that the Pharisees say. The world has gone after him. Now, obviously here when the Pharisees say this, they are frustrated, right? Oh, the whole world is going after him. But I think when John records this, there's, there's some beautiful irony happening here. I think the Pharisees are speaking a little bit better than they know. 
Now, why do I think this? Well, if you go back to John chapter 11, we have another instance of a religious leader speaking better than he knows. And there's irony in what he says. Look at John 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. It's so crazy to me. They know he's performing signs. They know these things are happening and they want to shut it down. They're not willing to believe it. They just want to end it. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And look at what John says here. This is awesome, I think. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. In fact, he was talking about the same thing I think the Pharisees are talking about. The Pharisees say the whole world is going after him, and they're frustrated, but you know what? Ultimately, the Pharisees are right, aren't they? They're right. The entire world will go after him. Now, not every individual in the world, but that's exactly what's spelled out in verses 51 and 52 there. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe will go after him. So that's one aspect of what the Pharisees are saying, but I think there's another way that this is ironic and that points us to the work of Jesus. When you look at this phrase John in John 12, verse 19, the world has gone after him. That word world, that's a very unique word in the Gospel of John. You and I tend to think of that, that word as talking about the bigness of the world, the, the scope, right? Wow, there's so many people. So we read this to say there's so many people who are going to come and believe in him. And I do think there is an aspect of that. That is true. There is a bigness to the number of people who are going to respond to the work of Christ. But I don't think that's the primary emphasis of this word world in the Gospel of John. In John, this word world speaks more of the badness, the wickedness of human beings than the bigness, the scope of Christ's work. Why do I say that? Well, the same author in 1 John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is the system of human beings who are in rebellion against God. They are opposed to God. This is what happens at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. People get together and oppose God together. So this puts a, a different spin on the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. We think the scope of that. But I think John is thinking the wickedness, 
despite the wickedness of the people that are living in rebellion against God, he sent his son to die on the cross for them. I think these words of the Pharisees get to the very heart of the reason that Jesus came to die. He came not just to save a lot of people, although we find in Revelation there's a multitude that no man can number around the throne of God. He didn't just come to save a lot of people. He came to save people who are wicked and who are rebellious, who are self-serving and self-centered. He came to save the world the system that is opposed to him and his goodness. He came to die for people who couldn't redeem themselves. And that's a truth that's worthy to be celebrated and proclaimed here. So many people think that religion is about being a good person. It's just about trying your hardest and doing the right things. But I want you to hear me clearly this morning. The beginning of a relationship with God is understanding that you can't do the right things. You are incapable of pleasing God in any form or fashion because you're a part of the world. You have been tainted by sin and broken by sin. We're all twisted and broken and we're born that way. But true faith, true religion is looking to God and saying, I cannot come to you on my own. I cannot earn your favor. I cannot save myself. I need someone else to take my place. I need someone else to die on my behalf and to wash my sins away. We talk about the gospel a lot here. And I want to make sure that you understand what I mean when I use that word gospel. Gospel does not mean that you work really, really hard and try your best. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word means. It's the good news that you and I aren't good enough. We're not good enough. We haven't done enough. We can't do enough. It's the good news that even though we can't do enough, Jesus came to die for us and to pay the penalty for our sin, to win the victory over sin and death, and to bring us to God and to give us eternal life with him, to know him. The gospel is something you believe in, not work for. You can't try really hard this week. And all of a sudden, God is like, hey, sweet, you did a good job. You're in. You can never do enough. And that's the beauty of the gospel. We can't do enough, but Jesus did everything for us. And it's his grace that opens our eyes to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a gift. And it's given to a world that is broken and sinful. And it's given by the king of everything. So this morning... If you've never recognized yourself as a rebel in need of the grace of God and in need of the death of Christ, if you've never fallen on his grace and said, I cannot earn this, I cannot win favor with God, I can't do anything, then I would encourage you this morning to come face to face with your sin and consider the good news of the gospel. But if you have recognized that before, if by God's grace you've seen your sin, turned from your sin, repented of your sin, placed your faith in Christ, then there's one appropriate and legitimate response for you and I this morning. 
And that response is to do exactly what these people did when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. It's to go out and to bear witness to that reality. And what's amazing about this is they saw someone else raised from the dead, but you and I, if we've come to faith in Christ, we are the ones who have been raised from the dead. We have been given life. We have been brought back from sin and from death and given eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that is something to be proclaimed and to celebrated and to find great joy in. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the good news that Jesus Christ came so that the world would come after him. Those of us who are sinful and broken and twisted by a rebellion against you, we can be bought back from that. We can be redeemed from that. We can be given new life in you. And then rather than living for self, we can follow our humble and gentle king and we can live for your glory and for the good of others. We can live in a way to serve those around us. And as we do that, in your great grace, we find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. How good are you, Lord, that you have done this for us. This is a truth worthy to be celebrated and proclaimed, and I pray that you would help us to do that. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.